Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng. This month, we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Kinsey Report, a 1948 book written by Alfred Kinsey on the sexual behavior of the human male. This study not only was one of the first academic papers to look at sexual behavior, but it also raised important questions for the data science community in terms of ethics and bias in data. This episode, we talk with Dr. Justin Garcia, executive director of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. Dr. Garcia is the Ruth N. Halls Professor of Gender Studies and co-chair of Human Sexuality and Health with the IU School of Medicine. We also talk today with Dr. Carlos Rodriguez-Diaz, an associate professor and the vice chair of the Department of Prevention and Community Health at the Milken Institute School of Public Health in George Washington University. He is also the president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. Well, thank you, uh, Carlos and Justin, for uh, joining us for this uh, episode on the occasion of this after seven decades uh, of the Kinsey uh, report on the you know sexual behavior, and I guess it's seventy or seventy-five, depends how you count. And uh, uh, I want to mention that you know two of the three authors on the statistical part, uh, Bill Cochran and Fred Mostaller, all come from my department. They were the founding father figures to the departments, and so I. Had a chance to meet one of them, and so it's very uh, uh, meaningful to me to particularly hear you two to talk about uh, this report, and most importantly, talking about uh, what has happened since then. Because lots of things has happened. So, uh, my first question is really to uh, Justin, as the executive director. Um, can you give us a kind of a crash course about what this report found originally? Uh, my understanding was one of the first studies of its magnitude. To look at the sexual preference and orientations first in men, then later uh, in women. So the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University uh, was founded by Harvard alum Alfred C. Kinsey, a zoologist, um, and really the start of these studies where we get the data. Uh, just as a quick historical piece, it started in 1938. Kinsey was team teaching the marriage course at IU. Uh, it was really sort of a sexual hygiene course uh, for married students, and. Uh, there were so many questions around sexuality. It really represented the very best of what university life is about. There were so many questions. He started turning the students and collecting interviews uh, to answer those gaps. Two years in, the university president said, Alfred, you could do this wild study or you could teach the course, but you can't do both. Um, so that's where this study started. So really as early as the late 1930s. Kinsey and colleagues amassed over 18,000 interviews. The interviews lasted somewhere between three hours and 18 hours. They occurred over several days. Um, and that formed the basis of the two sort of what are known as the Kinsey Reports, the 1948 book, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male, uh, which was an instant bestseller, and five years later, uh, Sexual Behavior of the Human Female in 1953. Um, so those are really their, their interview, uh, their data based on interview. And to this day, it's one of the largest, most comprehensive studies um, of people's sexual histories. Now, there's a lot of things we'll talk about today about their methods we don't use anymore. As, as like any science, it's iterative. Um, but uh, it was a, a really a comprehensive and groundbreaking approach to understanding what was happening in people's sexual lives. What were the major groundbreaking findings in both of those for men and women? Oh, sure. Uh, there's a wide ranging findings for both men and women. And I think, in fact, even the cultural response to both the first book being on males, uh, focusing on, you know, rates of sexual behavior, sometimes things that people weren't expecting of 
uh, patterns of infidelity or trying new experiences, whether it was group sex or whether it was things that we think of as illegal, either at the time or today, you know, things like cross-dressing and sex. Today, we use different, often use different language, different contexts for it. Uh, you know, this is a time that homosexuality was uh, viewed as a mental illness. So, um, you know, so the the data was for the time in the historical period revolutionary in terms of thinking about what people's experiences were. Now, for the first book in males, there was a lot more public acceptance about what the data were saying in terms of men had sex outside their marriages. Uh, there was premarital sexual activity um, uh, among men who lived on farms. Fifty percent had a sexual experience with an animal at some point in their life. I mean, a pretty wide range of from very sort of vanilla things to things that people think of as atypical. And what Kinsey and colleagues said is, well, turns out we might think of it as atypical. We might even think of it as something illegal or aberrant, but it's happening at very high frequencies. So what does that mean in terms of how we're conceptualizing these things if we're seeing it happening in people and populations around us? Now, the second book, five years later, Focus on Women, America had a very different reaction. Suddenly, Kinsey and colleagues were telling people that their wives and daughters and sisters and mothers had engaged in infidelity that they weren't having orgasms with their sexual uh, encounters. People started burning the books all over the world. Um, so it was a very different kind of cultural reaction. And then the big intervention, I think, and then I'll, I think we'll talk more about, was the, the so-called Kinsey scale, thinking about sex on a continuum. Before we get to sort of those details, because I find that all fascinating, and I also, I, the, the one thing I remember from the Kinsey report was 10%, that concept that 10% of men are gay. That was like where that 10% came from. Is that right? Is that what that, that concept of 10% of the population is gay? Is that where that came from? The Kinsey reports get cited for that, but it wasn't a nationally representative study as we understand it. They did do something really interesting in their methodology. They tried to have what's called saturation. So they would go into... A group, let's say they went into the Elks Club to interview some men or a certain community, and they would try to get 100% of the people in that community. And they did that about a quarter of the time. So of all the interviews, so it was an interesting sort of, uh, raises interesting statistical questions, interesting methodology about trying to say how, how accurate we could be. Um, but the study was fundamentally not representative. Um, but yes, there are things about 10%. And I think... Um, in many ways, even the Kinsey scale itself, it raises questions about what does that mean if we say 10% or X percent of men in a population are gay? Are we talking about identity? Are we talking about same-sex behavior? Kinsey actually was not, and, and his colleagues, they weren't interested in identity as we study it today. Um, they were, really wasn't anywhere in the study. Even the Kinsey scale, as originally conceived, was about behavior. It wasn't about people's identities in terms of you know a sexual orientation. Given this is a data science podcast, we particularly want to dive into certain, you know, data collection aspect. And you already mentioned these non-representative samples can creating these numbers and people quotes all over the place could be very misleading. And I want to turn the question to Carlos because you study systematically, uh, you know, the medical ethics or sexual pertaining to gender expression, sexual orientations, and a lot of these things being representative, I guess, is be very important to your study because you don't want to portray uh, certain things just based that sample is biased. So I want to ask in your studies, and this is the many, many years later, what are things that have been improved in this area in terms, you know, avoiding these kind of a statistical pitfall, not representative samples? What are the things from the methodological perspective? Like what do you see? How do we overcome these problems? Fortunately, we have learned over time in many different areas how to do better sex research from ethical 
practices on how do we engage research participants that comes from a better design. And also we have expanded the way we study sex. So it's not only about behaviors. We have changed the way we understand sex and therefore we have changed what we study from identities to practices to risks to pleasure and things that are good for sexuality. And we have developed uh, measures that help us understand those concepts better. We have moved to even have culturally congruent uh, measures because another limitation of the study, it was that it was conducted on, among predominantly white populations and in the continental US. Now we have sex research going in everywhere in the planet, and that's fabulous. And we are learning not only about the human sexuality, but also how it's different among humans and how sometimes it's appropriate to make comparisons and sometimes it is totally irrelevant to make comparisons because at the end, what we want to understand is sexuality in context. So it's not only about the, the human aspect, but also how we interact with our environments and our communities. Can you say something specific about what are the methods, for example, because we know that when you survey people about these more intimate questions, people tend to not want to respond to you, right? Or the ones who want to respond probably is not representative. So what are the, can you give one or two examples, like the kind of technique you use to ensure the things, you know, can be, never be perfect, but much better than in the past? Sure. So I will start by saying that one of the good challenges that comes with studying sexuality is that the knowledge is continuously evolving, but also we understand better the fluidity that is inherent to sexuality. So people that might self-identify as heterosexual at a certain point in their lives might not self-identify as heterosexual later on. And that helps us inform what kind of analysis, what kind of margin of error we might see as we develop the sample size or the power analysis and understand where do we have to collect data. So I think one of the lesson learned is that we have to diversify where do we collect data, how do we collect data, and also how we ask certain questions. Um, because the meaning of some of the constructs that we want to study are not always understood in the same way. Could you give me an example of what you mean by that? Sometimes we can use the same language like orgasm, and we cannot assume that people understand what orgasm means or how an orgasm is experienced. One of my first sex research studies was about circumcision. And I ended up writing about circumcision because I was asking people with penises about circumcisions, and I was doing my research in a geographical location where circumcision was not common. So people had no idea what I was asking because it was not culturally socialized, right? So again, now I know that. So when I ask about circumcision in that same place, I know that I have to provide more information than just asking about circumcision. That also helped me reaching out to other groups so I could have a more diverse sample and therefore I could do different kind of analysis. Justin, it seems like, you know, everyone, I don't want to say admits, that's not the right word, everyone acknowledges that there were some statistical methodology questions over the original Kinsey report. But is it the case that the Kinsey report 
still had the right answers. Like the methodology may not have been perfect, but now over time with new studies that have come out where the methodology now has been corrected, is it the same answers? Yeah. I, there, oh, there's so much here. And I think there's so much um, for us, particularly on the data side, to, for us to really think about. And as I said before, it's, you know, we're, we're talking about a study that was conducted over 75 years ago. And those methods certainly have changed. They should change if they haven't. I think we're in bad shape as a field. Uh, but there are certain things, like there are certain methods that Kinsey employed. I think back to this question of, you know, do people report honestly around their sexual lives? One of the things that Carlos and I and our colleagues often think about are, you know, you can ask someone their sexual experiences and have a data set. And you can have a lot of zeros. You can have some mixed numbers. And then you can have someone who says, you know, uh, 500, 1,000. And I think there's a tendency with some of our colleagues to instantly clean the data. But in fact, if that person was a sex worker, if they were an athlete on a college campus, those numbers aren't totally un, uh, out of, out of, unheard of. So, you know, when we even think about a data set of what we, how we collect those questions, how we clean that, how we analyze, how we interpret that, um, we have to really cast a wide net in terms of thinking about people's lives. To the, your core question, though, about what, you know, how some of those numbers have changed Sometimes it depends on what, what it is, the, the exact construct uh, that we're measuring. So with the original Kinsey scale, it wasn't about sexual identity or orientation. The researchers asked people, how many male sexual partners have you had? How many female sexual partners? How many male sexual fantasies have you had? How many female sexual fantasies? And in a sort of true zoological tradition, the researchers assigned a score on that scale. Participants were never asked to identify on that zero to six in terms of what was reported in the, in the book. So they were assigned a score um, in a sort of ethogram <laughs> type of way based on their behaviors and their histories. Now, most of us in studies today, we wouldn't do that. We tend to ask questions about people's identification in terms of their identity of sexual orientation, maybe on a continuum, on a scale. I think the great intervention by the team was thinking that these things, like so many things in the natural world, are on a continuous scale. And we would maybe ask people about their behaviors, particularly in public health, areas, uh, we'll use terms like MSM, men who have sex with men, because sometimes we want to look at behavior and not necessarily orientation, or other times we want to look at orientations, and those terms are expanding. Uh, you know, for us, it's a case that the very questions we're asking about society and, and different generations are expanding the frameworks they're using. So our job as scientists is to try and keep up and say, you know, the way that we asked about sexual orientation 75 years ago isn't going to be how we asked 30 years ago. It's not going to be how we asked it three years ago. Um, because the cultural context within which we're studying it is changing. The words are changing. The language is changing. Carl's looking forward. How does the data science revolution itself is helping uh, the study on sexual behavior, particularly you know the area you work on, minorities, others? Like, for example, can ChatGPT help to summarize data in more anonymous ways? You know, is there or is going to create lots of uh, misleading? information, everything people put online, it gets summarized by ChatGPT. What's going on now? Well, certainly the, the methodologies and the way we collect data have changed over time. Um, I would say that something that has also uh, improved our understanding of human sexuality is the use of mixed methods and integrating other disciplines from studying our brain to studying our behaviors and how that is connected. But specifically to, to the revolution on, on the technology using in sex research. I, I witnessed how we were able to capture, for example, better data about sexual behaviors in uh, socially vulnerable populations once we integrated 
data collection online because we added a level of privacy to the process that allowed the participants to perhaps feel more comfortable sharing information that otherwise would be different to share face-to-face. -face. That has revolutionized not only sex research, but many other fields in uh, human behavior and health. As a mixed methods researcher, I would say that nothing for now, I don't, I don't know of any strategy that is better to understand certain experiences than sitting down with a person and talking. Certainly, there are things that we need to measure and that we need to count. And in my field, we've been able to integrate data that we collect with humans and then add data that uh, is collected through the systems that are used by humans. So for example, in the health field, if we wanna see health outcomes, uh, we can combine surveys with machine learning and we can create models to explain certain health outcomes. And we are doing that already. We are also using artificial intelligence to understand orgasm and the sexuality of humans and the interaction with technology. And I think that we are revolutionizing in that area as well. Yeah, I think uh, increasingly on the in the sex tech space uh, of how people are using technology to, to connect we have a big study we've done with Match uh, for over a decade now and how people are using dating apps and websites, how data is being used, whether there's algorithms, um, whether they work uh, or not. So there's a lot of questions in terms of how we're finding romantic and sexual partners. Um, and, I, and I wanted to add one other thing also, I think a methodological point that you all raised earlier. When we ask people about sexuality, I agree with Carlos, you know, the internet has really changed our ability. And, and not only do I agree with it, there's data that backs it up, that it's really changed our ability to ask people, particularly vulnerable populations, about their experiences. But we, as a field, also have methods that we use to try and help people. I mean, we'll, we'll often um, put things in data sets that make people not feel stigmatized when they're answer, answering questions around their sexuality. So we're, I think, perhaps more than some other areas in the behavioral sciences, very much aware of the possibility of causing um, you know, threat to participants just by taking part in a study. And actually, Kinsey did that as well uh, three quarters of a century ago. So he wouldn't ask people, have you ever cheated on your spouse? He'd say, how old were you the first time you had sex outside your marriage? So we really, as a field, try and think of ways that we ask questions and solicit that information from participants that is, um, they don't feel stigmatized by just reporting it. Well, that actually um, raised another question for me. Uh, these days, as you know, the data privacy is, is such a big topic. Right. And there's a whole notion of, for example, called the differential privacy. I'm actually working with one of my students doing research on these areas. You know, what are you doing in terms of preserve these, you know, data confidentiality? Are we doing better than in the past? What other methodology you're using? If you're collecting data, do you do, for example, differential privacy to the data before you release to others to study them? When people take part in a study about their intimate lives, they're sharing something with us. And we have an obligation as scientists to protect that data and protect the people who are uh, sharing a part of their lives with us. And that ranges the gamut. I, I mean, I'm a biologist by training. I started my career also collecting hormone samples and genetic samples. And there's all sorts of security things we, we will do with biosamples as well. Sometimes for us, the the greatest risk is having identifiers about participants. So we will take pretty significant measures to make sure that the data sets are de-identified as much as possible, unless we specifically have to follow up with participants. Sometimes the only identifiers are the consent forms. But there's also methods, and I think 
Here we borrow a lot from uh, innovative work in HIV about if uh, there's not enough individuals in a population, we're very careful about what we will publish. So if there's three trans women in this community and you have two of them in your study, you're sort of identifying them um, in, in your data. So, and that, Carlos, you maybe can say more to that about being really cautious about when, as researchers, we have to say the data is identifiable in a way that is not safe for the people who have um, participated in our studies. Well, yes, to expand on what Justin shared, in sex research, um, my experience is that we go uh, an extra mile because we understand the nature of this research that we do without stigmatizing, because talking about sex is not a problem. It's how you talk about sex and with whom uh, and for what purposes. And research about human sexuality is a good thing. Often we have to educate uh, bodies that regulate research so they can understand the kind of work that we do. And my experience, uh, these uh, institutional review boards are very open to learn more about the research that we do and why it's important and why we are asking the questions that we are asking. And to the point of getting to identifiers, sometimes we have to explain as well what is an identifier based on the populations that, are, that we are working with. When we have population-based studies, the likelihood of getting identifier decreases, well, not getting the identifiers, but to be able to identify a subject um, decreases because of the amount of people who can participate that might share certain behaviors or identities. Now, when we work with smaller groups is when it can get complicated. And, and then it's a matter of how you present the data to ensure that we are not identifying people. So it's not only how we collect the data, but also how we analyze and present the data. As the nature of my work is community-centered, sometimes the information is important in the community to make decisions. So I use the, the findings with the community so they can use it the, way, the best way they can without getting to a point that they can say, oh, these people participated in the research. You know, Shali is always, always on the data science. He keeps me on track and it's always data science and then I go up into the clouds. But I can't help but ask this just because, you know, I, sex is an interesting topic. You know, it's not, it's not your, your normal data science topic. What was the most surprising finding you've seen? It's a, it's a great question. And I think uh, there's so much, I mean, there's so much there that, I, that is surprising. So one of the major differences between the 1948 book on males and the 53 book on females is they had to change their core analysis. Um, and part of that was in the male book, a sexual outlet was associated with climax. And it was when they were doing the female book that they realized that that was that there was so much uh, more variation among women of whether their sexual event resulted in climax and orgasm. So they had to just, the, the data was presented differently. I actually find the second book, the 53 book, to be much more theoretical for that reason. And sex scholars have argued whether or not Kinsey was a, a data tabulation specialist or a theoretician. And I think really that's where you see he was doing both, right? That there was a lot of theory behind what he was, behind the method, as, as our statisticians will tell us, there's often a lot of theory behind the projects. So... For that, I think it was really interesting because the researchers demonstrated, and it's something we continue to work on, uh, that I've worked on, our colleagues have, looking at uh, what we call orgasm or you know, the distinction between orgasm and sexual satisfaction, um, how they always don't relate, that you could you know, have very high sexual satisfaction but show low orgasmic rates. 
um, that with orgasm, you can have both primary and secondary anorgasmia. So some, uh, particularly in women and both, both sexes, but we see this a little bit more in women that you might orgasm uh, rarely uh, for some and then for others, almost never. So what we call primary uh, anorgasmia or secondary, which is the which is when you would say, um, I never have an orgasmic event ever uh, or rarely with a sexual partner, but then other people, it's more variable. And that's actually what most women experience in most of the large data sets. So that tells us something about what the actual, not only the sexual event, but what the outcomes of those are in terms of pleasure, satisfaction. And for me, orgasm is so biopsychosocial. The data is pretty clear. It's a physiological, it's an autonomic nervous system response, but it's extremely subject to psychosocial factors, including whether you think you should be having that sex. If you have stigma about whether or not you think you should, you're unlikely to get into the psychological state that you can have that autonomic nervous system response. So it's one of those topics that the biologists and the feminist scholars and the sexologists, they can all weigh in on and they're all right because there's all these factors at play. That to me was was a piece of the puzzle that I find um, endlessly interesting because there's so many factors involved and in, in how we understand what orgasm is, who has it, when they have it, why they have it, why they don't have it. Um, some of it's anatomy. Some of it is uh, is the positions that we're having sex in. Um, so th- that for me was the big one, I think, and because it was partly a story of how how to analyze data and think think broader, but also a story of how complex one variable can be in terms of our understanding of what are we even measuring when we ask someone if they had an orgasm. Carlos, what are you thinking? So to answer your question of uh, from the original research and things that were uh, surprising or very relevant, a personal anecdote. At the time that I started studying sexuality, uh, I was also working as a health educator in a prison system. So I was working with inmates. So when I looked at the Kinsey report, uh, he collected data among incarcerated population. One of the projects that I took on as, as a graduate student was to look at what has what was reported about that and then how that could have been used to pathologize certain behaviors. Because as a, as a pioneer study, I believe that the approach of including people who were incarcerated, it was a way of diversifying the sample right, which sounds very good. But at the same time, as it is not a representative sample, he might have overrepresented some groups that are known to be engaged in some behaviors that nowadays are considered pathological. So how that influenced what we pathologize on sexual behavior, sexual encounters, consent. So to me, that was fascinating. Um, I don't have all the answers to the questions that I had back then, but I do know that we have improved how we engage uh, prisoners into research, how we ask questions about uh, sexual behaviors that are not necessarily pathologized, but that are stigmatized, um, how we have influenced the decisions of pathologizing or not certain sexual behaviors. Um, so that to me was fascinating. And from my own research, uh, a finding that it was surprising and at the same time I liked how it was used was uh, it's connected to the research that I mentioned uh, earlier about circumcision. And the reason I analyzed data related to circumcision was that back then, early 2000, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, were promoting uh, male, adult male circumcision as a way of preventing HIV. And all the research that was used to inform that policy in, in the United States was research conducted in Sub-Saharan Africa, where penises are different, 
circumcision procedures are different, hygiene is different, sexual behaviors are different. And there was no research conducted in the United States. And I was collecting the data and I said, okay, I need to publish about this because I don't think this is the right way to go, you know? So eventually I demonstrated that having a foreskin or not was not preventing HIV. That could be a mechanism, but not necessarily well understood in the United States. And that was used to inform policy and to respond to how we make decisions that are not culturally congruent. And so that helped making a, a policy decision. So to me, that was very relevant and it made me feel as a contributor to how from sex research we can move policy changes. We always do uh, one magical wand question, but today we're gonna actually gonna do two. Human as a biological being, there's only two activities that are most fundamental for people. One is eating, the other is mating. So we decided this deserves, uh, you know, two magic wand questions. So for me, to both of you, if you can wave your magic wand, what would be the piece of technology or study that could revolutionize the way we think about sex and the sexual data? Well, so if it is about technology, you know how nowadays we have this feel-like uh, cameras that can be used to study the stomach and the IG system. I wish we could create something like that to understand orgasm and how the body respond and how muscles and nerve system may respond. And that could be connected all the way to health outcomes. So it would be amazing uh, if we could create something like that. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's create it. I think for mine, it's also technology. One of the things I'm I'm really interested in as a researcher is um, as we go through our days and our lives, uh, to your point, right, about whether we whether we eat or we mate, uh, how we turn those systems on and off. Uh, some of our theory, our colleagues use a model called the dual control model, this idea that we have a, a gas and a brake pedal for our arousal responses, that we, we don't all walk around aroused all the time. Um, but how that plays out in our everyday life, if we could really track people over hours and days of, you know, when when we do have arousal responses and when we don't, to really measure that. Um, in context, in social context, interpersonal context throughout our days. We understand the mechanisms, but not how it plays out in people's relationships and real lives. Thank you. And uh, now I'm going to turn to Liberty, see if she can ask an even more interesting question. If you could wave your magic wand, what is one thing that our listeners should do to improve their sex lives? What, what would be the best advice from all your research on sex, from whether, what makes people happy, what makes people unhappy? What is the one thing they could do to improve their sort of their sexual being? Oh, first on this one, I think uh, there's a lot of things we can do, and it depends on what our goals are, right? So one of the, the funny things about uh, studying sexuality um, or studying sex behaviors is what are your goals? Is your goal comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it connecting with your partner? And you know, one of our one study of asking people why they had sex is well over two hundred reasons people report on why they had sex the most recent time. So, what of those two? What of those two hundred? Which one do you want to make better? Um, so, I think there's uh, a lot of different things, but I think at the core, um, it's talking to partners, really having conversations about partners, about your expectations, about what you like, what you don't like, your goals, your your vision, your passion. There's an increasing number of studies that show that people aren't having talking to their partners enough. It was one of the big things that happened to the for the pandemic. Uh, millions of people it was the first time that they ever 
turned to an intimate partner and said, you know, do you have a, a fantasy or something we've never talked about? I mean, it took being locked up in lockdown together for people to do that. So I, my takeaway is, um, is talking. It's just having a conversation. Or if you can't bring yourself to talk, text it to each other. But opening a conversation about what you want and what you don't want in our sexual lives. I think my response is on the same line, uh, but I would give you two. First, orgasm is not always the goal of having sex. And there's so many ways of enjoying your sexuality that may not require uh, penetration. So remember that because you can really have a good, healthy sexual experience in so many ways. Our body is all sexualized if we want. And with communication, we can engage with our partners in the best way possible to enjoy our bodies, our everything that we are and that we bring to the table. And, and as a public health scientist, I have to say, talk to your healthcare providers about your sexuality and your sexual health. Our sexual health is as important as our physical health, our mental health, oral health. And often our healthcare providers are not asking the right questions. And we need to talk about things that matters to us. So if you have pain during uh, having sex or you are bleeding, or even if you're just super healthy and want to make sure that you want to stay that way, talk to your health care provider because we want people to enjoy sex for as long as they want and can. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the HDSR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer, Ari Onwin Frank. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review. Everything data science and data science for everyone.